0: Hey, welcome to the Gospel Rant. I'm Dr. Bill Sinyard with Gospel App Ministries. And also welcome back to the Sermon on the Mount Gospel Rant the uh, last podcast, we started a sermon series, a message series, a podcast series through the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to have a lot of fun. I uh, hope you're with us for the long run. It's going to take us a while. Now, I'm going to try something different. It's a rant, after all. So we're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount's larger context. I alluded to that in the first podcast. But we're going to be starting at Matthew 3. The typical place to start with the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5, but we're going to start off with the baptism uh, of John the Baptist. Why? Well, here we can begin to see a little bit of the amazing nature, the DNA, the fingerprints of Jesus, and a lot about the nature and bent of His mission and rescue that we miss if we start at Matthew 5. You'll see what I mean. Now, I'm going to do it by using a broad interpretive rendition. I don't want to call it a translation because it's not exactly that. Maybe a screenplay. I mean, I've looked at the passage. I've done some solid exegesis, the same stuff I would do if I were translating it or preaching on the passage. But I'm going to use all of that to help us see the event, the persons, uh, the culture, the context, the color commentary. So I'm going to tell a story for a bit. And then periodically stop, give my thoughts, interpretive notes, exegesis. And I hope you will be captured by the material and moved. Hopefully it changes our lives again. So if we start at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, we miss a lot of Matthew's important character development and mission definition that comes before the actual talk. So imagine how hard it would be to do narrative character development on Jesus. I mean, if you were Matthew going, okay, what do I, how do I describe Jesus, right? We theologians are struggling to do that 2,000 years later. And, and Matthew has uh, five chapters, four chapters ahead of the Sermon on the Mount, two of them on his birth and childhood. So... What do you do? I mean, it's, it's very condensed. And here we go. Look, imagine we knew nothing about Martin Luther King, but only had his I Had a Dream speech, right? His Sermon on the Mount. And it's still really good, by the way, and really important speech. So much packed in there. Brilliant. But we lose a lot not knowing the man, not knowing his sense of mission, his struggles, his personal accomplishments and failures to date, and what eventually tragically happens to him, Right that fleshes out the I had a dream speech. I hope that makes sense. And unless we see what Matthew wants us to see about Jesus and his mission, we might just think that Jesus merely came as a teacher of principles, which, by the way, he did, but not just that. And by principles, I mean those things that if you only did them, you would thrive, and your relationship with God would blossom, and your identity would be firm, right? Well, I'm going to argue that Jesus will lump that narrow a line of thought as sand thinking in, in a parable that he'll give in the Sermon on the Mount. It's good stuff, but very insufficient. You're not going to build a house on it, for sure. Well, in spite of what so many preachers are implicitly and explicitly communicating that, you know, that's really what Jesus was was trying to do. And he is, but there's so much more. All right. Let me see if I can help us visualize that. I'm going to toss out two spectrums. The first one is the rescuer judge spectrum, or you could call it grace law spectrum, or we could broaden it as the kingdom as wrathful justice or the kingdom as rescuer of humanity spectrum, okay? Uh, And then that's spectrum one. Spectrum two is Jesus as a teacher of principles on the one side or Jesus as the rescuer on the other. So first spectrum Make uh, in your head, make the spectrum of zero to ten. Zero is Jesus coming as a just, angry Messiah. Many thought that, right? An instrument of God's prof- prophesied justice related to his people, or in fact, the world, right? For crimes against God, humanity, and creation. That was the Messiah that the Pharisees largely expected. Now, at the other end of the scale is ten, and that's Jesus as the gracious the gracious savior of screwed up sinners so where would you on that scale on that spectrum where would you put your x where do you think jesus and the story resides okay and by the way we can also label the extremes uh, of the spectrum about the kingdom of god is the coming kingdom a representation of god's wrath or his grace so would you say a two that is most mostly about the law and breaking the law and justice you know, you do the law, God's wrath could be shifted in your favor a little bit. And if you do enough, boom, your life changes. Jesus says, Blessed be those who pull off more than others. I mean, if that's what you're thinking primarily. Or do you put a 7.7534, right? Jesus has come with a message of rescue for abysmal failures who, who can't or won't do it right or do right. Well, So what do you do? You throw yourself on His mercy, His grace, His love. So where do you land on that spectrum? And where you land affects how you hear and interpret the Sermon on the Mount. Yes? So I'm going to suggest that no matter where you land on this horizontal spectrum, right, you risk seriously misrepresenting and misunderstanding Jesus and His work and message. It's better— all right, watch what we're going to do here. It's better to see the horizontal spectrum as a circle and the opposite opposite ends actually meet. Are you with me? So 0 and 10 are the exact same point on the circle. So Jesus has indeed come to satisfy justice and takes the law perfectly seriously. He is a hypernomian. No one has ever been more serious about the law on planet Earth. And, 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 and he has come to be the perfect rescuer for law failures. Because, let's face it, who can escape from the arms of this law? Jesus equally prioritizes both. Equally. It's crazy, right? So just breathe a little bit and let that swirl around your gray matter a little bit. Uh, Let it it sit with you for a little bit. You might want to stop the podcast and just walk and think. All right, listen, if you knew me, you would know that I almost always prefer simplicity, the simple path, the simple solution, right? But, but not here, not in this case. God's ways are indeed, as the Bible says, higher than ours, and Jesus, the description of Jesus, the essence of Jesus is way beyond our comfort zone. Nothing simple about him. Fully God and fully man, theologically, right? And we say that cavalierly as if we understood it, but it's way over my pay grade. I defy you to explain that to me and answer all my questions. So, in the same way, Jesus has not and will not compromise one iota of the law, all will be fulfilled, all justice satisfied to the nth degree, but Jesus has come to save defendants who have no claim, no hope for rescue because of God's high, high commands and expectations. He would have them experience the favor of God as they are, as they are law wrecks. More favor than Moses felt, or Abraham or David. That's crazy, right? Both ends of the spectrum are represented by his first presentation of his job in Luke 4. Listen, 4.18. He says this. This is He's referring to him and his calling, his passion, his charge, his ordination. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me, here it is, to preach good news to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. To who? The poor. You now, you may say that only one side of that spectrum is represented because it sounds like Jesus doesn't care about the law. He doesn't mention it. And he's, he's presenting himself as the rescuer, law be damned. No. And hopefully after this series, you can begin to hear both of those spectrum ends represented in these words of Jesus. All right. The second spectrum, if you're hanging with me still, Jesus as a teacher of principles, would be zero side of the spectrum, or Jesus as rescuer and healer on the 10 side of the spectrum. All right, either a teacher of principles or a rescuer and healer. Where would you put an X? Where do you think Jesus is? A three, four, five, seven, eight? And look, you can see, I think, right, you can begin to see how where you put that X biases your experience and how you listen to Jesus, that teacher on the Galilean hillside. Is Jesus just an ancient Yoda, a you know, wise person, extending Hebrew wisdom? Is, is, uh, is he an inspiration or a model of what perfect humanity should look like and walk like, should act like? someone who would be an inspiration to people like Gandhi and others. Is our goal to glean and apply his kingdom principles so that we can show people what the kingdom is like, what God is like, and hopefully hopefully change the way we live and change God's minds about us. So earn God's favor by adhering to the principles, to earn God's friendship by how well we do Jesus. Remember, what would Jesus do, WWJD? By the way, a little side note, how cruel would it be if this was it? I mean, if that's it, that he was just a teacher of principles for all the, the tragic people, the Tolkoy and the Greek, the, the societal losers, those people who can't pull themselves up by their shoestrings. I mean, they're stuck. And for them to hear, hey, thanks for coming, but the reason you're in your mess is your fault. All you need to do and can do is to try really, really, really hard. All right, come on, you can do it. And here's three applications for you to do this week. Let's pass the plate. <laughs> Did I mention that tithing is important here? Well, look, there's enough truth in that line of thinking to support it, sort of, kind of, but not alone. It Alone is cruel and, and shaming. Jesus is for failures. And by the way, there are no successes make sense? And you know that down deep, right? He identifies with the broken and embraces the broken. I am convinced that this is the number one reason why Gen Y's, the millennials, and Gen Z are leaving institutional church. They're so tired of being shamed. Um, Shame, feeling not enough, feeling like you've fallen short of expectation, feeling like you're too weary to try and fail again. It's, it's already at a high level from the way they were raised and educated. It is. I mean, document after document. And then they go to church and get shamed even more. They're told, uh, look, it's your fault. You need to work on this harder. Well, why do that? Why follow a God who just shames? Am I right? Look, if you're, if you're Gen Y or Gen Z and you agree or even disagree with this, let me know. I'd love to hear from you. Bill at gospel-app.com. Well, I believe, and by the way, I agree man, I need to meet the rescuer Jesus more today, tomorrow, and the next day in my life. And the balance has been sadly absent, I think. Well, look, you tell me. So the other end of that spectrum, did Jesus, was he a teacher of principles that you need to do in order to to get God's favor, or did he just come to rescue screw-ups and failures and enemies of God who can't or won't change, right? So forget the principles, right they've tried to please the heavenlies but they're looking at their lives and they're feeling like they're being judged and punished by the heavenlies they've messed up and why wouldn't they give up it's damned if you do and damned if you don't so are you feeling like a failure related to god an outie like god is disappointed in your pitiful efforts and has finally just waved his hands and disappeared in disgust left you alone are you wondering if he's cut you out of the will And feeling celestial loneliness, void of any real faith that you think you once had, that made you feel valued and honored by God, a child of God, a son or daughter. Yeah, welcome. Look up into Jesus because he's the rescue of failures. Look, my story may illustrate this. I think that I've done more discipleship programs than any other human being who ever lived, particularly in my first 15 years of being a Christian, right? I became a Christian at age 21, and, and i desperately wanted to know God's favor. And I, I went to discipleship programs over and over and over. And each one I crashed and burned. Some some so badly, right? But each one I failed. I didn't live up to the expectations of my discipler. I fell short. And I was in the fifteenth year of that mess that miraculously Jesus came and made me feel loved by him, made me feel liked by him. And I learned that Jesus actually likes failures. And that wildly changed me. I was a Christian before, had the Holy Spirit before, but this was another level. I was made to feel loved and and made to believe that Jesus actually loves failed disciples. It's, It's a growing club, by the way. Well, Matthew shows us this end of the spectrum. On the hillside, Jesus came for the anawim in the Hebrew or the tokoi, those who are so impoverished in so many ways, economically, socially, emotionally, spiritually, identity-wise, and they can't heal themselves. They can't lift themselves up. They can't fix their situation. They're they're done if they don't get a hand up, if they don't get a savior or a rescuer. All right, so there we are, the spectrum. Which one do you abide by? In most of the time, okay? Well, if I could be so bold, this is what I'm going to uh, present as the correct answer. It's not a horizontal spectrum. It's rather that same circle where the ends are the same point, where the ends meet. So, it's both. Is your mind blown? Boom! But the catch is this. Uh, look, if you back up and go, yeah, I like that. So I'm going to say a nine, that's close to that point, or a one, that's close to that point. No, 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 you're missing the point. That would be error. Jesus clearly unpacks the perfectionism of the law. Matthew 5, 48, he says, be perfect, even as God is perfect. That's what he says, nothing less. And if you're not perfect, you don't just need a helper, an inspirer, a challenger, um, a coach, a new discipler, or a new discipleship program. You know, something or someone that will give you a hand up or push you or ride you uh, so that you can top off your righteousness cup. No, you need a rescuer. You can't do it. You won't do it. And discipleship is good, but it never rescues people. It doesn't have the power or the authority. Jesus is ramping up what perfect righteousness looks like, setting up the reader, that's us, for the eventual conclusion that only he was righteous. Only he was righteous enough. And only he can rescue failures we're stuck with him so to speak well that's good news you can't bring anything to the heavenly table you never have been able to when you come to the communion table you don't bring a thing he brings all you need and i need that's the provocative multi-layered complicated sensitive compassionate jesus who sits down among those desperately needed people needy people this is the jesus who we see beginning to be unpacked by Matthew before the Sermon on the Mount. And in this vignette, the baptism of John, then the temptation by Satan, the calling of the disciples, we'll look at each one. So we're going to start at the baptism in Matthew 3. All right? And look, give me feedback if you like this approach, if you like the narrative, bill at gospel-app.com. So it's going to take us three podcasts to get through this. It just does. It's 17 verses, but there's so much in here, um, and you'll see why it takes takes so long. Again, let me know bill at gospel-app.com what you think. So welcome to the Gospel Rant. So here is the NIV of the first six verses of chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Okay, so here's my interpretive rendition or screenplay. And again, I'm going to do a little bit and then do some uh, technical notes. All right. It was then that John the Baptist appeared out of nowhere. All right? Uh, here's some notes. Sorry just to, to cut it so quickly. In this perspective, and this is 30 years or so past uh, chapter 2, an interesting note, there were baptisms around, there were proselyte baptisms, there were a mikvah Ritual cleansing baths at the temple where you would wash off the external sins right before you entered the temple uh, if, you, if you were a man. And there were baptisms in the Qumran community, but they were all self-administered. It would appear that this is different uh, in a lot of ways, but John the Baptist, it actually does the administering, it appears. Okay? All right, so back to the screenplay. John had started preaching in the desolate, hot Judean desert, and he just kept saying, Things need to change now or never. Turn your life around and practice what you preach. If you really want God's favor, act now because he's coming. In fact, he's just around the corner already. Isaiah said it a while back you will hear a lone voice from the east howling in the desert. Now, there is no more time. Make the necessary preparations for God. Clear the path for the coming king. And whatever you have been planning on doing to get God's favor, do not delay. Do it now. Okay? Fun, right? Well, the desert. The desert of Judea, these are my notes now. It's harsh. It's largely uninhabited. It's the area um, just, just east of the Mount of Olives all the way to the Jordan River. The famous or infamous Jericho Road cuts through that wilderness, but it was home for religious separatists, by the way, thieves too, but religious separatists like Qumran, ascetics like John. Metaphorically, the desert was seen as a place for new beginnings. Surprisingly, it comes out of the desert. Check Isaiah 40, verse 3, Jeremiah 2, verses 2 to 3, Hosea 2, 14 to 15. Ezekiel's vision of God's Shekinah glory leaving the temple uh, and Jerusalem is imagined going down this road into the wilderness east and maybe beyond to where the uh, people were exiled. And to repent, another technical note in this Jewish context would be to admit their indifference and rebellion towards the covenant and the covenant God, and then go back to being faithful, go back to covenant obedience, whatever that meant in their brains and it's a Jewish message by John in context, right? We try to modernize that, but it ends up contextualizing it probably too much today. I prefer to see this a call to unfaithful Jews. That's the context uh, directly. Qumran, by the way, would agree for the need to repent. They would have been around that area, and they taught or thought that Jews really needed to repent from their other communities, like being associated with the temple, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, or whatever, and joined their separatist community because only the Qumran community was right and righteous. And they condemned the temple. They thought it was uh, hypocritical and heretical, everything about it. But John's solution was not that. The John's solution began with being baptized in the Jordan. Very curious, very weird. This does not appear to be a ritual or a token uh, event, that we do sometimes in our churches, it was part of fleeing from the wrath to come. It's a different feel, right? There's terror involved. It's not the joyous uh, celebratory feel of today's baptism, so it's different. Now, kingdom of heaven. I'm going to interpret, and I think this is legit, the kingdom of heaven as a circumlocution. Mm, Use that in a party. That's the use of many words where fewer words would do, especially in a deliberate attempt to be vague or evasive, or in this case, appropriate, respectful of God. So Jews wouldn't say, good Jews, Orthodox Jews, would never say the name of God or write it down. Rather, instead of that, you would replace it with a different word or more accepted words or phrases like name or Elohim or Shekinah or glory or kingdom right so when matthew speaks of the kingdom of god or kingdom of heaven i am going to suggest that he's ultimately referring to god god himself it's jewish code and matthew doesn't have a greek bone in his body and it or he is in so. he's immediately near he's right around the corner and this is the 12th hour. There's no no time gap anymore. It's a big contrast to the the abs, absolute apparent lack of urgency from the religious leaders who kind of show up and don't get worked up about the whole thing. They don't seem to participate. They're looking at it theologically instead of, man, this is serious. Lastly, John's clothes mark him as a second Elijah. You can check it out in 2 Kings 1 verse 8. Elijah was prophesied to return, to come back before the Messiah. Not a lot of explanation, but there it is. Uh, check out Matthew 11, verse 14, 17, 10 to 13, and that'll explain it more. This Isaiah passage was originally understood uh, in in Matthew to apply to the release of Israel from exile, The Qumran teachers understood this as a call for for their followers to go to the wilderness, to get prepared for God's coming from the east to reward the righteous, meaning them, and to punish the unrighteous, meaning the rest of Judaism and the temple. All right, back to the screenplay rendition. I got to come up with a description for it. Uh, Help me out, bill at gospel-app.com. Here we go. It was a very strange sight, for this was not the voice of a kingly messenger or prince or cleric. John was as rough and raw a human being as anyone had ever seen. His barren, torn strips of camel hair cloth were wrapped around his head and waist. His ascetic calling mirrored his bleak and barren desert surroundings. His face was burned, dark, gaunt, and thin. His straggled beard was untrimmed and scattered by the dry wind." in the parts of the desert where he lived there was no meat little water so he learned to survive on whatever insect he could dig up every now and then he would find a little bit of honey that was a good day and he would thank god for that you can be sure but in those but those days were rare in the judean desert such was john's miserable existence he would say calling well this day john had left the worst of the desert behind him god had given him and he was not sure why him a stark message, a frightening message. John was willing, but was afraid that this would be his last. So be it. He had survived the damnation of the desert's inhuman ecology, and now he has one last message of warning for his tribe. And he knew it would not be received well from some parts, most parts, in fact. Maybe after that, the desert would seem almost hospitable compared to the treatment he would get in Jerusalem. As he lowered himself into the very shallow Jordan River, he was reminded of his birth home, Nazareth. It was as different from the desert as any place could be. What had led him to this existence? He could have been a fisherman or a carpenter or teacher, but God raised him up as the next Elijah. Really? Him? Why? He was reminded that it was just not about him. This is the final clarion call. He's just the messenger. The long-awaited, long-feared day of the Lord is at last here. Isaiah foretold of a spokesperson. John would fill that bill. But he knows that Israel's not ready. Far from it. He wonders if he is. Truth told, he was surprised at how many people came to hear this harsh, judgmental message from God. They just seemed to keep coming from Jerusalem about a half-day's dangerous walk, but also from the east and west of the judea region something was happening here and they were scared god had clearly pricked their hearts they were authentically frightened and wanted to know what to do john had never seen anything like it god was coming for a jew to be baptized was an act of deep humiliation and loss of face it was extreme they were openly admitting their sins against God and Torah, confessing aloud publicly that they were under God's judgment again, that they had failed and screwed up again? Will it lead to another exile? God forbid. All Jews, if asked, wanted God's favor and certainly didn't want God angry with them. It's an easy synagogue question to, to answer. But until now, no one really thought much about it. God seemed like a distant fairy tale, something parents would tell their children to scare them into obedience. But something had happened to these people. They were terrified. They realized, maybe for the first time, that judgment was on the way. Real, not a boogeyman. They are absolutely not ready. For Judy be even willing to entertain the notion that nothing that they had done, including prescribed temple offerings and worship and prayers, the mikveh baths that supposedly washed sins away, nothing they had done had a chance in Hades to spare them from the wrath of the coming king. If God were coming, and for some reason they either believed it or were afraid not to, they were in deep trouble. Not just a few people, not just the religious zealots or professionals It looked like everyone came, lines upon lines of men and women and boys and girls, all in fear and humiliation, bowing their heads in submission to John's baptism in the shallow, muddy Jordan River. They weren't theologians. They had not heard about a need for baptism. This was new. But if this fiery preacher said that this was a way to at least begin to do what God wanted, they were in. It was a physical Public confession of their individual and corporate failure and faithlessness. It was a way that each could publicly say, die, sin. The implication was that this was the best way to prepare for God's arrival that they had. But was it? It turns out that God's way is higher than humanity's. Jerusalem and other villages around had emptied out and landed here. It looked like a new exodus, John thought to himself. If so, would there be a new rescue, a new Sinai? He wondered. All right, there we go. Um, More to come. Uh, I'm going to end the podcast here. If you're following along, we're around Matthew 5 or 6 or so. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope that we blew your mind. And maybe you're feeling a little bit of the smile of Jesus upon you. And listen, help us get the word out about this important gospel account. Tell your family, your pastors, your church, your small group, the missionaries you support. Post it on Twitter or Facebook. Let the people you know who are church-damaged hear about this. This is a safe place to take some dramatic spiritual baby steps, shame-free. And look, if you have a comment or testimony or have questions, let me know, bill at gospel-app.com. We need to see Jesus differently than we've done in a long time. It'll change our lives. See you on the next Gospel Rant. Have you ever attempted to read the entire Bible? Did you do it, or did you only make it part way?